Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles program that we call Things We Said Today. This is a weekly show in which we talk about all things Beatles, whether it's their past or what's happening in the news or anything in between. I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. Some of you know me for another Beatles show that I host called Every Little Thing. And I'm being joined by my co-host and several other co-hosts who are now, I'm proud to say, regular co-hosts. First of all, Steve Marinucci, who writes for several Examiner columns, and uh, most of you know him for Beatles Examiner, writing for that column. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ken. Hello, everyone. And also on the program, one of the writers for Beatle Fan Magazine. He's been with them since the very beginning, really, Al Sussman. Hello, Al. Hi, Ken. Hi, everybody. How's everybody doing? And also from Beatle Fan and one of the writers, culture reporter, for the New York Times, Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hi, Ken. Hi, Al. Hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. On uh, the show this time out, I thought we'd talk about one of the Beatles albums, which just uh, recently, a few weeks ago, celebrated an anniversary. came out November 22nd in the U.K. in 1963, that being their second album called With the Beatles. And there's so many ways we can go in this conversation about this album, I thought I'd talk, first of all, about uh, the progress the Beatles were making as a group musically. Now, I'd like to start the conversation with Alan, because I know that in a previous conversation that I had with you, which, by the way, is on my website, plug, plug, um, <laughs> we were talking about, since your, your book came out about I Want to Hold Your Hand, we were talking about the singles the Beatles released from Love Me Do leading into I Want to Hold Your Hand, mm-hmm. how they were progressing musically, evolving and growing musically. And um, I wanted to know, first of all, and we're going to address this to all of you, if you noticed a big difference between Please Please Me, their first album, and with the Beatles, did you see some kind of growth there? I think one of the things that is most fascinating, and, and so many Beatle fans, I'm sure, feel this way, about the group is how they kept on changing and growing, and some people will say even very early on. So what have you, Alan, and we'll talk to the others, what did you observe about this particular album compared to the previous album? Um, I think there actually was an enormous amount of growth between Please Please Me and With the Beatles. People always say that both of these albums are essentially a a kind of um, idealized version of their stage set, which in a certain way is true, um, but it's more true for Please Please Me. What they have in common is a layout where there are eight originals and six covers. Covers were really important to them at that point, and, um, and they were also just beginning to sort of ramp up the production in terms of writing their own stuff. Um, and so it wasn't really until Hard Day's Night when they could just churn out a whole album of, of their own new material, brand new material. But with the Beatles, if you look at what's going on, uh, you know, the, the, on Please Please Me, it's pretty much the four of them. Occasionally George Martin adds a keyboard line or Celesta or something like that. Um, but, but not very much messing about. On With the Beatles, they're a lot freer. They're also, you know, there's more, there's more of George Martin. Um, he's adding more keyboard lines. Um, it's, you know, later on, you sort of, 
you can identify certain George Martin ones, but Paul is becoming a much better keyboard player too, so he's taking on uh, some of these roles. But if you look at it, I mean, it's sort of like they opened up the instrumentarium away, so to speak. You have something like Till There Was You, which was in their stage set. You know, they played it in an electric version on stage. But when they went into EMI, they made it an acoustic song, really. And uh, Don't Bother Me, you know, George Harrison's first uh, first composition uh, you you see them with, you know, adding African drums and, you know, whatever they could find in the closet. You know, they were beginning to do that experimentation that a few years from from this point would really lead in a lot of interesting directions. And you also see, uh, which is really kind of interesting to me, you see a lot more jazz chords in the guitar lines. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that the jazz chords very obviously fascinated George. I mean, he's the one doing them. Um, and you listen to something like uh, All I've Got to Do, you know, the very beginning, uh, opens with an E augmented, which is sort of an E chord with a, an added ninth and an eleventh. Um, not a basic rock chord. It's, you know, something that George seems to have run into and the solo on All My Lovin' is also kind of jazzy in a certain way. Um, and the funny thing about that, for me anyway, is that John was very outspoken all the time about how much he loathed traditional jazz. And so there must have been some sort of tension here because George was obviously getting into it. Um, and after this album, you didn't see a lot more jazz chords in their in their songs. You know, they got more sophisticated in other ways, but um, but it's pretty much confined to with the Beatles. So I think, you know, even though we, we probably tend to think of them these days with the wisdom of hindsight, having gone through their entire discography, you know, over the years, we tend to look back at the first two albums This is almost primitive Beatles. But yet, if you take just this and please, please me, I think you see an enormous growth between the two. You know, I just want to add one thing there, Alan. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the first chord of All I've Got to Do. The way that It Won't Be Long ends mm -hmm. is very, very unique because you've got very sophisticated chords there with what really are sevenths and, and um, yeah, major sevenths. And uh, I think there's a, a G sixth and then there's seven chords. And it was very different to end the song that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's George, too. You know, I think that's his his input into these arrangements. And then, of course, um, in uh, Not a Second Time is the famous Aeolian cadence <laughs> that, <laughs> that William Mann, who was a, a classical music critic for, for the London Times, um, reviewed this album and reviewed it very positively. And it was pretty much the first time that a serious critic who spent most of his time with classical music, um, wrote in this kind of way about a Beatles album, and it made a big, big difference uh, to the way people perceived it, I think. But the Aeolian Cadence, you know, the Beatles themselves always made a lot of fun of that. And Aeolian Cadence is nothing but an A minor to E minor chord. You know, it's very, very simple. He was, he was just being fancy, you know. Hmm. But, so... Al, how about you? Well, I'm going to kind of take uh, Alan's cue. Now, I'm going to defer to to Alan and Ken since they're both musicians. Uh, I'm not a musician, but 
I'm kind of a, a song guy. I'm kind of a, a melodist. And the thing that you that really leaps out at me when you listen to the Please Please Me album side by side with 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 the Beatles or either of its uh, American counterparts is the quality the the great leap as Alan just pointed out the great leap that they made within just a, really a period of a few months uh, in the quality of the songs. If you listen to the songs on Please Please Me, you know, The Misery, even Do You Want to Know a Secret, There's a Place, they're, they're okay. They're, they're nice, good pop songs. The stuff on, on With the Beatles, All My Lovin', Not a Second Time, I mean, I'm, and I'm sticking really with the with the originals. Um, mm-hmm. Even don't bother me. All I've got to do. They're all they're very they're much more sophisticated. Again, taking Alan's cue, they're much more sophisticated than the songs than the originals on Please Please Me. And plus, also as Alan pointed out, the 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 more extended instrumentation, the more varied instrumentation uh, on the songs it wasn't just you know guitar bass drums harmonica uh there's a lot more going on instrumentally and it's interesting that please please me was recorded in one day you know the the legendary 12-hour session but whereas the songs that were on with the beatles were recorded in the space of i guess about uh, four months basically because I think the first recordings were done in July and this is you know they're recording while they're on tour so mm. that makes it even more impressive but there really is a very big leap in quality in the, in the quality of the songs between Please Please Me and with the Beatles yeah I would agree with you Al although I will say I think one very early Beatles song, an original song that I think has never gotten its due. I think "Ask Me Why" was really a brilliant song, yeah, and and very different for its time. Mm-hmm. I, I get, you know, you talk about chords and just the way the song is structured, and it, you know, you could say this about so many Beatles songs. Sure. In fact, most Beatles songs that nobody else sounds like them. Not only in terms of their recordings, but the song compositions themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think Ask Me Why is a little bit more complicated than uh, a lot of the early Beatles stuff. And uh, I think that was that was one of the more brilliant of the early songs. Obviously, I saw her standing there as a great rocker and all. And you have all these other songs there. But definitely, yes, there was a, a definite uh, improvement in the songwriting yeah. from one out to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you took Ask Me Why and put that side by side with All I've Got to Do, say... Um, I think they're definitely comparable in quality. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. How about you, Steve? I think there's a. Uh, I like to think of of the difference between "Please Please Me" and with the Beatles as a leap in sophistication. I, I go along with what what you said, Al. But I but with the Beatles is a lot more sophisticated as far as I'm concerned. Um, the songs aren't. You know, I mean, obviously this isn't as complex as they got later on, but you can you can hear uh, a big difference. I mean, one of the things, like you mentioned, Al, is the fact that 
Please Please Me was recorded in a day where this was recorded, you know, over a much longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And obviously they had time to work on things a lot longer. But I also think there's another element involved here, and I, and I think especially to American fans, with the Beatles is going to be forever linked to Meet the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the two, those two albums, you know, they really, at least in my mind, they're always, you know, they're always going to be linked. And, I mean, for, you know, a lot of, obviously for a lot of American fans, when you hear, you know, I want to hold your hand and I saw her standing there, you start thinking of the lineup of Meet the Beatles. I know, I mean, I do. But the two albums are linked and it all, and, and what that means is that was the, the real dawn of the whole, you know, worldwide Beatle phenomenon coming. And and so that that's another thing, too, I think that that was very important and is that with the Beatles was was the you know at, at the tide you know on top of that tide is you know as Beatlemania began even though it wasn't with the Beatles and talking where you know Meet the Beatles was it was related to with the Beatles and and that was when that whole thing got started so I think there's 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 the cultural thing of of you know Beatlemania that you have to look at but also the, as Al said the sophistication is very important. There, it's it's real clear. And what's really funny is if you look at the track list, some of those songs didn't get get here until uh, get to America until the Beatles' second album that they were already here. And if you were lucky enough to live on the East Coast, as I was, some of the some of the stations were playing imports. I know WMEX in Boston and WBZ were, um, and I I, I assume. That uh, the New York stations were. I wasn't in New York in '64, but I assumed that some of the New York stations were doing the same thing, you know, with the way that WMCA and WABC were, were you know, such rivals. I'm sure they were looking to outdo each other that way. But it's inter it's interesting that you know, uh, Rollover Beethoven for one was on with the Beatles, and it didn't show up until a little later in America. But anyway. All right, well, we'll talk about that a little later on. But right now, we're just focusing on the music of with the Beatles. And I would just pretty much agree with everything that all of you guys have said. And I always remember an interview that I did with Pat Denizio of the Smithereens, who is a big fan, obviously, of the Beatles, and he loves the early Beatles stuff. And he always uses that word, sophistication, which I think a lot of people may not associate with the early Beatles stuff, people who don't really are aware of the work that was put into it. The song structure and the composition is very different from what was going on at that time. There's no other song that sounds like Not a Second Time, for example. There's no other song that sounds like All I've Got to Do, you know, or All My Lovin'. You know, I was just curious, Alan, you were saying that the guitar solo in All My Lovin' to you was, was a jazz type of solo? Because to me, I've always thought of it as being more rockabilly. Rockabilly is one way to look at it too. I, I think of it as a little as veering towards jazz because of the of basically the rhythm of the line that that George is taking. You know, it's not it's not just a straightforward twangy line. It it has you know sort of starts and stops. And um, I don't know. I can hear it as rockabilly too. I mean, now that you mention that, but um, I'm just probably because. When I was thinking about that, I was thinking about George's other jazz influences. I also heard it that way. And also, it I mean, it sounds like he's playing parts of it in octaves. And that's kind of a jazzy thing to do, you know? Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, but you know, it's funny the way um, Beatles things are, are, are certain to a certain degree can be all things to all people, you know. So if you listen to if you listen to one of their songs in a certain way with a certain idea in mind of you know the, the solo being slightly jazzy, you can you can hear it that way and you can justify the argument if you hear it if you think about it in a different way as rockabilly or straight rock or whatever i mean a lot of these songs are have such a sort of varied quality that that you can you can find ways of of, of hearing almost anything in them that's they're so rich that way you know uh, I mean, you're obviously not going to hear something that's absolutely not there. What I'm saying is that there is a lot there. There's a lot in them that you can pick up on and um, and and argue with a, a particular way as opposed to a different way. Um, and two people with completely opposite opinions of it can be completely right. Alan, as a matter of fact, yeah. I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned before that you felt that uh, the George – wasn't able to slip in those jazz chords after uh, after with the Beatles. And mm. could that possibly be because over the next uh, over the next year, they really began listening more and more to Dylan and that on, you know, the Hard Day's Night album, there's a lot more what seemed to sound more like folk. Again, from a non-musician point of view, um, more like folk chords in certain songs. I'll be back being an obvious uh, an obvious example of that. Yeah, there may be there may be an aspect of that. I mean, one thing I didn't mean to imply is that John squelched this this jazz idea. Mm -hmm. It's just that John was very outspoken about hating trad jazz, as he always used to say. And right. and I and I just think that it was an interest George had. It could also be that George lost interest, you know, soon mm -hmm. after with the Beatles uh, and moved on to something else. You know, it's hard to hear Hard Day's Night with the same kind of arrangements as. All I've got to do, um, mm. and yet, having said that, we've all heard jazz covers of some of those songs, and they sure. were. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think I wonder unless if we're unless there's a lot more to say about the musical side. I, I wanted to pick up on what Steve was talking about with um, the American albums, because of well, course, I did want to yeah, I did want to bring up a few things. First of all. There are some similarities between Please Please Me and With the Beatles, and as you mentioned, the Beatles followed a format of eight originals and six covers, which they also did on Beatles for Sale. Mm -hmm. But to me, a similarity is that you've got two more or less show tunes with A Taste of Honey on one album and mm -hmm. Till There Was You on another. So I recognize that as being also a similarity. And... Um, you know, obviously the rest of the covers were all 50s rock and roll. So, you know, there is that similarity there. I also would like to point out, I think, the guitar solo that George did on Till There Was You is one of my favorites. Mm. And it's just so unique. It's got like a Spanish flamenco feel to it, which was so different for a pop group to do at that time. Mm -hmm. I, so I, that's another, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I always thought Till There Was You and, and Taste of Honey were more of kind of a branding thing. They were trying to they were trying to appeal to the um, the adults to try and uh, maybe bring in a few adults into the into the mix. I mean they weren't gonna they weren't gonna get a lot of adults obviously with a young pop group, but you know maybe the maybe some of the mothers would 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 like that, and especially having Paul sing that song exactly till, till mm -hmm. there was you. That, I mean that was 
perfect image branding, you know, uh, years ahead of its time. Um, <laughs> Plus, they were the first, the first, you know, each one was the Paul Ballad. And this is before he began writing his own ballads. He didn't mm-hmm. begin writing ballads until And I Love Her, really. Yeah, they recognized early on that he was, you know, that was a talent that he was good for. I was also going to mention the, the fact with all the covers, those covers were, um, all of them, were really, really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, especially, you really got a hold of me. That was extra special. In fact, on that Supremes album, um, I think it's called A Bit of Liverpool. Right. They, they do that cover, they do that song based on the Beatles version, and it sounds so good. And and you just know that Smokey Robinson and Motown, you know, really really picked up and noticed that very, you know a lot because it was I mean it was an excellent version it really was so yeah there was one other similarity I don't know if you guys ever thought about this between P.S. I Love You and All My Lovin' mm-hmm. because when you think about it lyrically it's pretty much saying the same thing mm-hmm. a guy is leaving his girlfriend he's going to write to her he's going to miss her you know it's pretty much the same idea. Almost like, I think, um, was it John or Paul that said it was like a soldier boy type of song, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I always think of those two lyrically that way. Musically, they're very different. But um, I kind of connect those two together. At least now I do anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Interesting. All right. So, Alan, you were going to talk about where Steve was going. Yeah, with yeah this you know, this, this, the business of the American and British albums, um, you know, to us as kids when we were growing up, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the British albums until I was a teenager and started going down to Greenwich Village and looking at import shops and saying, hey, what's this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we got what Capital gave us and um, Capital often takes a beating for and 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 quite often justifiably um for what it did with the british albums in making the american albums which is to say that they were putting only 12 tracks on an album instead of 14 they were putting the singles on the album which the beatles generally didn't uh, and it let them have a pretty much a third album for every two british albums and yet in the case of meet the beatles and the Beatles' second album, which is the other part of With the Beatles and some other things. I kind of, I really love those albums. And in a certain way, I think that with Meet the Beatles, you know, it, it, it keeps saying the wrong one because, you know, the, the, what, one thing that ties them together is that they the cover. Exactly the same <laughs> cover, right? Um, <laughs> Meet the Beatles in a certain way is a much better introduction to them if you Think of them as the guys who are going to be among the great songwriters of the 20th century, Um, because with the exception of Till There Was You, what Capital did is they got rid of all the covers. They added, I'm going to hold your hand. I saw her standing there and this boy, three other originals, and in cutting it down to 12 tracks, they just left. Till There Was You, which might have been is you know that branding thing in a way you know mm-hmm. to to appeal to a different audience, but otherwise this is an album almost entirely of originals, and Beatles' second album is very heavily a cover album. Obviously there are originals too, but it shows that other side. And 
you kind of almost think of them, especially since in America they were put out, you know, only a few months apart, really, because Capital was trying to grab onto as much audience as quickly as it could. Mm-hmm. You know, in a certain way, you, you can almost think of them as a double album, you know, mm-hmm. came out yeah. in two parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have to say, I mean, as much as I, generally speaking, prefer the British albums, I think in this case, those two Capital albums are brilliant. You know, and, and enjoyable too. Even even now, after you know, mostly I listen to the British albums. I, I still like putting on those two albums and, and hearing those sequences. I think that was very important because at the very beginning, uh, especially in uh, late January into February of '64, when as as, as Steve pointed out. Um, the top 40 stations began playing basically anything they could get their hands on by the Beatles, but particularly the fact that Meet the Beatles was really being pushed by Capitol, and that, if, for instance, in New York, the, the three top 40 stations would play tracks from an album, which was unheard of on a top 40, mm. on a top 40 station, but everything that was on it except for Till There Was You, was an original. And I think that's, that had a lot to do with getting that all that extra airplay, because otherwise, if, if they had had an album split almost down the middle uh, with covers and originals, uh, it might have blunted some of the airplay, because people, you know, disc jockeys would have recognized the names of the covers, and been less likely to play those, possibly. Do you think this that you think this was done intentionally for that reason, or was it done so that the perception that we would have initially was that hey, these guys write their own material; mm-hmm. it's almost all original. Wasn't it done more for that reason than to think, well, there's more of a reason to play it? I, th- I think so. To introduce them as a, you know, as a self-contained group that, for the most part, wrote most of its material. I, I actually, I actually think it was more of a PR thing to get people used to them. I don't know if it, if it had anything to do with the fact that they wrote most of their material. I think it's actually a better Meet the Beatles is actually a better introduction to the band because it, because it is all original. In other words, as opposed to them picking up other people's songs, you know, mm-hmm. this is this is the group as they are, you know. Exactly, and I'm I'm not dismissing what you said, Hal. I think you know you got that's probably very true. But at the same time, I think you know straight out as an introduction to the group, Meet the Beatles was all you know was mostly original stuff. And yeah, and I gave, think I think we're kind of saying the same thing. Yeah. For instance, if you look at that, uh, there's a section on, on in the liner notes on the back cover where it goes into what instruments they're playing and all. And and it, it it definitely plays up the fact that they wrote almost everything on the album. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, let me play devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In January, we had introducing the Beatles on VJ, so you had that album getting airplay as well as meet the Beatles. And if you think about it, the first half of 1964, which was just mind-boggling when you think of all the Beatle product that came out. You had this mix of all this music that really the Beatles had recorded in the last year and a half, 
really less than that. So you had, you really did have a mix of both original and covers. I mean, take a look at that first half of 1964, and you had Twist and Shout as a big hit. Sure. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't just the originals, obviously, that got a lot of airplay, but as as Steve was saying, and you were saying, Al, radio was scrambling to play anything by them. Mm -hmm. So uh, all the singles that flopped in America in 1963 were starting to get airplay. Love Me Do became a big hit. So it wasn't like it was all Meet the Beatles material. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, when you think of it that way, we're being hit with this avalanche of all this product. It's not like everything is all original material, but it's just so much great material. And I don't know how much attention really, I mean, you lived through it, you were much older than I was mm -hmm. at the time. <laughs> you know, was, was the, not too much, right. but was there so much talk about the fact that this is original or when you had all this other material being played at the same time? I'm sure that radio stations were playing, they were playing Chains, for example. Yeah. They were playing Baby It's You. They were playing Till There Was You. They were playing album cuts. Mm -hmm. They weren't just playing the singles. Yeah. So you were being hit with everything all at once. Yeah, so and they the weren't telling us, they weren't giving us the writer credits. You right. know? I mean, you, you, ha you had to get the album home to figure that stuff out in a way. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's one other, uh -huh. other aspect, which is that, you know, a lot of these songs, I mean, by, by 1964, so radio was becoming... Um, a lot more integrated than it had been, and you were getting groups like the Supremes and and the Temptations and having hits. But you know, before that, during during when a lot of these songs that the Beatles covered first came out, Roll Over Beethoven, some of the Chuck Berry things, um, the white audience for those songs was actually fairly small. And one of the great things the Beatles did really uh, was, and and I and they're given credit for this a lot, um, was to turn on people who listen to the whiter radio stations, the pop stations to all of this great R&B that was being played on other stations, you know, R&B stations and soul <laughs> stations. Um, and they were, you know, you remember probably, I'm sure you all remember that episode of Shindig where they're asking George, you know, what do you listen to at home? And he says, well, you know, Tamla Motown, all that crowd. And that's exactly mm. the kind of stuff they were covering. And and they created a big audience, I think. I think they really expanded the audience for the Tamla Motown singers. And, you know, I mean, Smokey Robinson will say that to this day. So, you know, I, I think that's a, another interesting aspect of the covers on their records. You know, in, those are in, all those songs, you know. In fact, uh, when they came over here, there were those uh, fact sheets of what they liked and what they didn't like and all. You know, Ringo liked, uh, you know, blondes and didn't like onions and Donald Duck, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> But it seemed like across the board at that point, they had become very much fans of what you might call uptown R&B because you would see Ray Charles, Chuck Jackson, Marvin Gaye, mm. uh, Etta James, names like that in the uh, Peggy Lee, uh, certainly not uptown R&B on those in those lists of their of, of their favorite artists at that point, because they had kind of, in a sense, I guess the music they were listening to. I think at that point, Sam Cooke is another one, obviously. Uh, they had kind of 
grown into listening, grown from listening to rock and roll to that kind of uptown R&B, and then soon would be graduating over to Dylan and, and folk music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so so definitely Alan's point is 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 very valid that they were that they were indeed turning turning us on to a lot of. Uh, a lot of black music that we really, um, you know, other than the, you know, the early Motown, uh, uh, but things, uh, Arthur Alexander, I mean, right. what, what American white kid had heard of Arthur Alexander, to be honest, right, right. in 1964, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. they definitely were pointing the way. But then also they were teaching us also about the, uh, those of us who were really too young to have experienced 50s rock and roll. They were teaching us about Buddy Holly and about Elvis and about Chuck Berry, et cetera. Yeah, they mixed the well-known 50s artists with more obscure mm-hmm. ones. Absolutely. Larry Williams Larry is Williams, another yeah. great example. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah they basically it's taught us a lot about our own music. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if you go deeper, if you look deeper into the, the influences, the, the wide range of, of stuff that you know that their music encompasses is is absolutely astounding mm-hmm. uh, it's really it's really kind of amazing if you look at you know the the remotely influence the things that remotely influence them it's pretty pretty amazing i mean they you know they would you would never have guessed back in 64 that that's what was going on especially if you were some you know some kid that had never heard of motown and chuck berry and things like that i mean but there was that music reached very deep, and it's, it's very cool to go back and look at some of that stuff today. And, so. he, and even the kind of pop music roots that they had, well, I mean, kind of even before rock and roll, uh, the fact that they grew up with a lot of, you know, English music hall music that mm-hmm. that, right. they, that they didn't really know, especially when they were younger, you know, basically, you know, John Lennon, you know, unreconstructed rock and roller turned out was a member of the George Fornby fan club. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. so they were, had grown up listening to a lot of uh, a lot of different forms of music, and even some that they didn't didn't really let on to when uh, when they first when they first came over here. Right. Well. Yeah, they later emerged in, in their in their later years yes. as a group, and then and then furthermore in their solo careers. Yes. And so the more that you study them, you you become aware of the fact that I've always admired the Beatles so much for, for many reasons, but because of the fact that they're so musically eclectic. But they were that way even early on. If you were to study uh, the research that Mark Lewison has done and the mm-hmm. songs that the Beatles used to perform live, mm-hmm. even early on, it's, it's wide range. It's all over the place. Yeah. And, uh, and it becomes more apparent once you study a lot of the solo stuff all the pre-rock and roll music that they were listening to, mm-hmm. listen to Sentimental Journey, listen to Kisses on the Bottom and certain scattered songs throughout the solo albums. Mm-hmm. And you begin to have a better understanding overall of, well, you get a complete picture of the influences uh, before rock and roll, during rock and roll, and while they're creating new music. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like you said, Bob Dylan, the Beach Boys, folk music, what was going on then, Indian music for George, all of that, that all is what helped to make them the phenomenon that they became. Absolutely. And there's some great collections out there if you if you want to explore that stuff. 
that Beatles Beginning series that's up to seven volumes now is just very great if you want to get into that eclectic music. So, or you could listen to the Beatles BBC recordings because yes. that has tons of things that aren't officially released and you know, or that they didn't take into the studio and really kind of fills out that picture an awful lot more. Mm -hmm. Right. And I've often said, you know, there's the 36 songs on on BBC Radio that the Beatles did not release for EMI. Those could have made another two, three albums on Mm -hmm. EMI, if you Mm -hmm. think about it. Um, And so many of them are just in perfect quality Mm -hmm. or near perfect quality, good enough. You know, and uh, it's a treasure to listen to the BBC stuff. Mm-hmm. And, wow. and, and who knows, they probably will sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, thinking about it, as I was saying, we, we had so much that came out the first half of 1964 in America. The British saw things differently than we did. I mean, we were really playing catch up mm-hmm. uh, to, the, to, the, to the point where it wasn't just... Uh, the first two albums, it was the singles that came out. Even the Tony Sheridan material mm-hmm. was coming out in the first half of 1964. So we couldn't really see, although as kids and teenagers, you can't really be thinking in terms of growth as an artist. This is all just great new music as it's coming out. But the British probably saw things a bit differently than we did here. Sure, but well, they, you know. they had the they had the luxury of kind of watching. That's why I've always kind of in a sense, envied the English in that they were able to see the phenomenon growing through the course of 1963, plus the fact that the records were coming out in in real time. They, you know, mm. we didn't get, you know, it wasn't like it was here where we basically got everything in a space of about three months. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, you know, over there, it was, you know, a gradual thing. You know, the five, the five singles that came out between Love Me Do and I Want to Hold Your Hand were you know, over the course of, what, 14 months, you know, whereas here, right. boom. Right. Yeah. I think things leveled off once we got to A Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and isn't it also interesting, guys, how we actually got Long Tall Sally and I call your name before the British did. Yeah, right. And three tracks from Revolver and Bad Boy. We, we got, we got, <laughs> right. We got a few things here and there, little scraps they threw us. <laughs> right. They threw us a few bones. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they're very true. It's uh, um, it's interesting because of the fact that, especially on the way with the way the, the Beatles' second album was put together. Uh, it's interesting that the the two song the song that they began their first American concert and the song they ended their first American concert are on that album are both on on that album uh, because of the fact that the EP the material from the Long Tall Sally EP uh, the one that as we're taping was just uh, a record store day. Uh, um, Giveaway, exclusive, yeah. right? Exclusive, uh, just over this past weekend. Uh, the the fact that Long Tall Sally was included on the on the Beatles' second album, whereas it wasn't on with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's inter- right. it's interesting the fact that that when they played that concert at at the Washington Coliseum on on February uh, February eleventh. Those two songs had not yet been released in this country by then. 
Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Was it give, was it given any airplay here? Because wasn't there the there single was, from Canada? There was a Canadian single of Roll right. Over Beethoven and All My Lovin' that, uh, again, because of the fact that the top 40 stations were vying to play any scrap of music by them, uh, there were some import copies of that single that made it through, but uh, but you know still not uh, you know it, it wasn't getting airplay to the extent of the of the you know the domestic singles of I want to hold your hand she loves you please please me especially at that moment in time. So the fact that uh, it was kind of a ballsy move to begin uh, your first American concert with a song that you had not yet released in this country and end it with. Uh, with another one. Mm-hmm. You think the Beatles were aware of that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's an intro. I mean, they, I know they were aware of the Capitol album because you'll hear them making references during that concert and other things to the Capitol album. But I don't know whether they were absolutely aware what songs had. Well, of course, Long Tall Sally, they had not yet released even in England. Because the Long Tall Sally uh, EP didn't come out until I think April. Um, just working on on memory here, but it was, right. it was it wasn't until this you know that spring that that EP was released even in England, and then you know around the same time it was on the Beatles' second album. So at that at, when they uh, when they performed it at the um, uh, at the Washington Coliseum, it had not been, they hadn't, well, they had recorded it, but it hadn't been uh, released in either America or the U.S. yet. Uh, America yeah. or the U.S., America it, or the U.K. It was released in uh, the U.K. on June 19th. Oh, it was that late. Okay. Yeah. So uh, then that's, you know, even it's even more of a, in a sense, a ballsy move to, um you know, to include a song that, you know, they had not even released anywhere in the world. Yeah, and I'm sitting in a darkened room, so I'm using, probably shouldn't use Wikipedia as a source. <laughs> but <laughs> Wikipedia says it was recorded March 1st and June 1st. Or the tracks were recorded March 1st and June 1st, which would mean it wasn't recorded when yeah yeah that's true so if that if that if that is indeed true i'm, I pr- I'm about 90 percent sure you're that's that's correct yeah i'm going to turn those, those songs were were in their set for, oh, of course you know, they for were ages you know, yeah, of course. As, uh, right. you know american classic r&b tracks although the, the question is um you'd have to go back and figure out how many americans knew you know if, who didn't listen to r&b stations yeah. whether they knew those songs or not yeah, um, right. I think, but right. they sure made a good case for them. You know, yeah. <laughs> if if it was totally new to you, um, and especially those performances at the Washington Coliseum, you could see, you know, coming away and wanting to hear more of that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, we were talking about cover versions that the Beatles recorded, and one of the things that I loved about them, and Paul in in particular, has prided himself in this when he was talking about the development of the band. He was saying that one way the Beatles had to make themselves different from other bands at that time was they had to find other material that the other bands weren't covering. So they would look at B-sides, for example. And, uh, you know, you take a look at Please Please Me and, and with the Beatles, you've got a song there like Boys. And also, certainly one of the most 
obscure songs ever of the ones they rec- that they recorded was Devil in Her Heart. So mm-hmm. just the fact that they found that song, that's one of the things that I appreciate about them. They were always digging around for, for other material. And uh, Devil in Her Hearts, you know, a lot of people look at that as being one of their favorites of the songs mm-hmm. that the Beatles covered. And yet it was never a hit here. Mm-hmm. Right. Here in America. I just pulled out another book, and it confirms the the March the March first June. It says March first to June first. I don't know if that's what the Wikipedia uh, if that's correct, but either way, uh, the March first date is correct. So mm-hmm. in that case, yeah, they had not recorded it before when they did it at, at Washington. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. We sh- we should all have Mark Lewison's books right at our side as we <laughs> yeah. do the show. We should have we should we should have Mark uh, we should have Mark uh, handy to, uh, get him to call in. <laughs> right, have him on a on a on a beeper uh, system. I don't, I don't think he'd appreciate that. Probably not. Probably not. But yeah, I mean that whole thing with the with the first with that with the Beatles album, it was just such a. You know, it's just such an explosive moment for them, and and I really, I, I I really can't get away from the Meet the Beatles with the Beatles link on this because of, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I I'm a first generation guy, and you know, I was Alan like you, I didn't see with the Beatles for many many years uh, after uh, Meet the Beatles came out, um, so. What can I say? Um, you know, for a lot of people, especially first generation fans, uh, Meet the Beatles is, you know, what they think about. And, uh, you know, when you hear that first out, when, when you hear Meet the Beatles, that's, you know, that's what brings it all back. Listening to With the Beatles doesn't bring Beatlemania, the feelings back to you like Meet the Beatles does, at least not for me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because that's what you are brought up on. Right. You know, it, it's fun to bring up this debate, especially with someone like Bruce Spizer. And, you know, you know uh, which album he would favor. Sure. But um, I grew up on Meet the Beatles. I listened to it religiously. And, you know, this if this was not only an album you were brought up on, but the first Beatles album you were brought up on, it's going to have ten times more significance in your life. Mm-hmm. So I want to hold your hand. What a great opening song. I'm sure there are people who feel the exact same way about it won't be long. If you were brought up on that album, you probably think that's that was a better opening song. So it's all the way that you're brought up. And um, you'll always have that argument, and we can even apply this later on in a mono versus stereo issue. Oh, yes. If, if, this, is how, <laughs> if this is how the Beatles released it, that's how we should be hearing it. So, you know, some people will feel that way. But if you were brought up on the American albums, and I'm certainly not going to take away anything from anyone who was brought up on them, and you have that strong emotional connection to them, then all the more power to you. The Beatles albums work because the material was so strong. Mm -hmm. In in any collection of songs, in any order, you get used to that order. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting about Meet the Beatles is that after you get past uh, this boy, it's basically the same running order. Mm -hmm. As um, what was on with the Beatles. Right. You know, so, you know, it's very similar in except that regard. Except they got rid of the covers. Except for the one, yeah. Right. right. Uh, except for the one cover, uh, everything else, all the other covers aren't there. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you brought up about the mono versus stereo, Ken, because, you know, with the when the first CDs came out, they were in mono, and now that the, now that with the Beatles is in stereo, it's, it's, 
you know, you listen to with the Beatles in, in stereo and it just doesn't sound as good, at least not to me. Um, mm-hmm. on, on the other hand, when they released the U.S. Albums box, you know, it would have been nicer to have the original mixes rather than use the remastered mixes like they did. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. <laughs> but you, you have, you have <laughs> them already on the 2004 <laughs> box. So that's right. all I'll say rather than start that whole, uh, no, I, well, no, I, I, that we have these mixes already in the 2009 box. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, right. that's too. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, you could, you can go all over the place with that argument, but, but I certainly mean, the, the, uh, you know, when the mono versus stereo, remember that, you know, when we when we heard Meet the Beatles in 1964, 90% of us were hearing it in mono mm-hmm. because even people, if there was a stereo in the house, generally the kids weren't allowed to listen to it. Right. In most right. cases, that was, you know, the domain of the adults and of, you know, real music. That's the way. But, that's the way it was in my house. Yeah, absolutely. You know, then so the kids had to listen to their rotten rock and roll on little, uh, you know, flip top, uh, you know, Emerson portables, things like that, and it was always mono. Mm-hmm. And Alan did a did an interview with George Martin that I had up on my that I still have up on my Heavy Roadside about mono versus stereo. Alan, mm-hmm. you want to talk? You want to talk about that? Um, well, a bit. I mean, you know, when the when the first CDs came out in '87, as as you all know, the first four came out in mono, and that struck me as a little bit eccentric. Um, strangely enough, I mean, my big fear was that the mono mixes would get lost, but it never occurred to me that the stereo mixes would get lost, which looked like what was happening. And when I talked to George Martin, um, basically what he told me happened was they had originally done them in stereo. And they they hadn't brought him in. They had Jeff Emmerich do it. And they brought him in once they were done simply to get what they hoped would be his seal of approval. And he said, no, these sound awful. These should never be out in stereo. Because he was he apparently was unaware of the early stereo issues. And I don't know how that's the case, because, oh. you know, I found ads from the time, British ads from their tour programs that showed stereo cover of Please Please Me and a stereo cover of With the Beatles saying, you know, we'll be out this month. So they were released in stereo, um, but he just disliked them. And we all know the reasons he disliked them, but felt but, but that applied only to the first two albums. Um, after that, um, he, he felt that they should be remixed for stereo to um, to account for the updated technology, but that they should be out in stereo. And uh, there wasn't enough time because uh, what he told me in that interview was that the entire campaign for the 1987 CDs was that Sergeant Pepper had to be out on June 1st mm. so that they could say it was 20 years ago today. Mm-hmm. And that was the reasoning. I mean, that was what drove whether they were out in stereo or mono, whether George Martin could go back and completely redo them. It, it was kind of a bizarre decision. But the other thing that um, in that interview that, that for me was particularly interesting, although it goes a bit beyond where we are, um, was that I said, OK, I, I understand that you dislike the early monos because the instruments are on one side and the vocals are on the other. 
And I understand that you did that so that you could combine them and make a, a, a solid mono recording. But half of Rubber Soul is mixed that way, too, and that was mm. recorded on four-track. Mm. So mm. was it just that you ran out of time and or what? And he, he said, no, we did that because we found that if you put the vocal in the center of a stereo mix and that we were trying to find a mix where we could do a stereo mix and simply combine it to mono instead of remixing. And because everything they did in stereo and mono, those are separate mixes, as you know. We wanted to do one mix we could, we could fold down into mono. But we found that if we put the vocals in the center, it went, once you combined it into mono, it made the vocal four decibels louder than it was in the stereo version, and that was too loud. So for those in that experiment, we put the vocals all on one side. Now, to me, that was kind of odd because he approved of the stereo mix, which was identical to the stereo mix of with the Beatles and Please Me because it was deliberate. Mm. <laughs> but he oh. didn't approve of Please Please Me and with the Beatles because he didn't think that it should be that way. It's hard to reconcile those things, actually. Yeah. And another thing he said in the interview, because I'm looking at it, is he didn't like the mobile fidelity pressings. Which That's really, right. which is really freaky because I mean those were so those were fantastic, and he said he didn't he he said specifically I don't approve of those master pressings, and um, I, I, I do you remember I, I I have it in front of me but do you remember what he said Alan? I, I do remember he said he he said just what you said I don't approve of those, and I said really and he said really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I, he never said why, though. I think what I think I think his point was that the technology that Mobile Fidelity was using was so refined that it was going to show up little noises and things that would otherwise have been suppressed in an old 1963 vinyl pressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he I think he found that the resolution was kind of too high for that for those tapes, for those master tapes. And then if you were going to do it for a high-resolution system, he would want to remix, which is why he remixed Help and Rubber Soul. I have the statement in front of me. Do you want me to read you what he said? Sure. Here was his answer to Alan. Yes, he did say really. He said really, or he said, I'm sorry, really, period. What they were trying to do there, and again, those were done without either the Beatles or myself being involved. What they were trying to do is trying to get the same kind of thing you have on CD, but without the CD itself. And I think they forgot in translating those to the master pressings, the EQs that were being used were appropriate not for that medium, but for the earlier medium. In other words, what you tend to hear in that way, and in fact what you're hearing even on the CD you're getting now, is a harsher sound than was intended. So there's what he oh. there's what he said about the mobile fidelities. So yeah. interesting. I think, I think uh, wrong. Very, inter- <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting. Well, already already I'm hearing future shows that we're going to do here <laughs> yeah. on things we said today, right. and uh, I, I'm looking forward to a very healthy, robust debate on <laughs> mono versus stereo. <laughs> I already know some candidates of people who would love to join in on the conversation. Oh, yeah. So, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, un- unfortunately, we have to come to a close here with our show for this time out. And if any of you would like to write to us, we have our own email address, which is thingswesaidtodayradioshow at gmail.com. 
And we also invite all of you to like us on Facebook. We have our own Facebook page for things we said today. I have my own Facebook page under Ken Michaels. Al has his own Facebook mm-hmm. page under Al Sussman. Alan Cozen has it under two of them. Alan, two different ones, right? Alan Cozen and Alan Cozen Remix. <laughs> and remix so you can like him twice. Field. Yeah, right. But when they remix you can like in, the, in, the, in the proper way. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, wow. See, only if George Martin liked it. Right. Then you can, you can have a Facebook page called Alan Cozen Remix. There, there we go. And Steve has a million different Facebook pages. He has oh, one yeah. under his own name. He has one under Beatle News and Commentary. And what else, Steve? Well, I have uh, pages for all my columns. Um including Beatles Examiner. Uh, there's a, even an Abbey Road Beatles page column, our uh, Facebook page there. Uh, there's all sorts of pages. I'm all over the place. Let me mention a couple things about where you can hear the show. You can hear the show on fab4radio.com um, beginning on uh, Saturday at noon ET, uh, uh, Eastern Time. Um, and it also plays Saturday and Sunday uh, at uh, noon and midnight ET. Um, it's on podbean.com, and we just today announced, ready, big uh, fanfare, we are, now on, we are now on YouTube, guys. So if you want to catch us, uh, any shows from here on out will be on YouTube. Um, just search for things we said today, and it'll, it should come up in your, in your searches. And also, if any of you are curious about my other show called Every Little Thing, you can hear that on Fab Four Radio as well, Sunday nights, before things we said today at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. And also, I should make mention of the fact that for, for those of you who have never heard Every Little Thing, there's two versions of the show. There's actually a syndicated version, which is one hour long, and there's a live version, which is two hours long. The live version is on WNHU in West Haven, Connecticut, and you can stream it. You can stream it Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 Eastern Time at WNHU.net. But in addition to hearing every little thing on Fab Four Radio on Sunday nights at 11 p.m., uh, there is a website out of Germany called GlobalTexanChronicles.com, and you can stream every little thing all weekend long, Saturday and Sunday, at any time you want. And you can just click on a box and hear it from start to finish. So, And I should point out that with every little thing, the syndicated version, the one-hour version, that any radio station that carries it can play any any show they want to. So it's not like you're going to hear the same show on Fab Four Radio that you would on Global Texan Chronicles. It could be a completely different show. I could be on 20 different stations, and they could be 20 different shows. But if you can, please check out the website, Global Texan Chronicles, as well as, of course, Fab Four Radio. And we're so grateful that they're carrying both of our shows. And there's also my own website, which is KenMichaelsRadio.com. Check it out for trivia every single week, prizes I give away, and uh, great interviews. In fact, everybody on this show has been interviewed, and it's on my website. So uh, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. I guess that's it. <laughs> so for Things We Said Today, I'm Ken Michaels thanking all of you for joining us, and I'll see you next time. And you, Steve? Goodbye, everybody. And Al Sussman? Goodbye, everybody. And Alan Cozen. Okay, take care and see you next week. <laughs>